It's time for Security Now. Steve Gibson is here. We've got lots to talk about. An update on that uh, hack on the uh, water company in Florida. Massachusetts has some ideas for what they could do next time. We'll also talk about uh, Patch Tuesday. Wow. Some doozies in there, including a patch for the Microsoft Fax server. You might want to get that one. And then we'll talk about the Android app with more than a billion users that's laden with malware. It's all coming up next on Security Now. Podcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson. Episode 806. Recorded Tuesday, February 16th, 2021. Comb. Security Now is brought to you by Thinkst Canary. Detect attackers on your network while avoiding irritating false alarms. Get the alerts that matter. For 10% off and a 60-day money-back guarantee, go to canary.tools slash twit and enter the code twit in the How Did You Hear About Us box. And by ESET. ESET protects businesses worldwide with internet security products and services backed by world-class research and tech support. Get your free ESET business trial and an interactive demo at business.eset.com slash twit and save 20% on ESET Protect bundles for a limited time. It's time for Security Now, the show we cover your privacy, your security, your overall appearance on the internet with this guy right here, Steve Gibson. He is your internet groomer at uh, grc.com. Okay. I guess. I don't know I've where been, I'm going with uh, that one. Uh, yes. Okay. <laughs> hey, Steve. So, Good afternoon, my friend. Um, so a lot of stuff to talk about today. Um, the, uh, the, the podcast is COMB, which is the abbreviation for Compilation of Many Breaches. Um, Compilation of com- Many Breaches. Yes, okay. COMB. Um, uh, it, it's... Uh, it just came out uh, a little over a week ago, and it's uh, I'll, I'll, I have it in the show notes something like three point one, three point two seven, three point some like three billion unique email addresses and password combinations, all in plain text. And you know, so we know that hackers do this. We know that sites lose control of their of their backend databases. There's been, over time, a migration from passwords in plain text to passwords poorly hashed, meaning like, you know, one iteration and no salt. Then we got into the multi-iteration, and then we got into the salt, then we got into the per-user salt. So over time, the, the, the quality of the protection being offered in the site's database has improved, but they do keep losing control of them. And, of course, the bad guys, those like, sort of, you know, those who maybe don't have the skills to go and leverage solar winds style attacks. It's like, well, let's build compilations of all the usernames and passwords. Anyway, a new big one has come out. We haven't talked about the, this idea of user uh, of email address and password lists for a while. So I thought it'd be fun to sort of take a look at where the state of the art is, how have these lists grown over time, 
you know, what does it mean that they're getting older and thus staler and so probably less relevant, but new ones are being added? So, you know, anyway, that's what we're going to talk about here as, as we wrap things up for the week. But we've got uh, some follow up on last week's podcast title and the big headline grabber. I saw it on lots of news reports, the attack on the Oldsmar, Florida water treatment plant. You know, it really got people's attention when you say, you know, 111 times more lye being added to the drinking water. It's like, what? What? Um, So we've got more details about that. Uh, We're going to take a look at or into last week's Patch Tuesday event for Windows at some of the sadly broken things that have once again been fixed. Uh, Also, anyone using Adobe's PDF tools, uh, Acrobat or Reader, needs to update. There was sort of a very important update for that also last week. Um, Normally, I don't talk about Android apps, uh, but in this case, an app is being very irresponsible about its design, and it has 1.8 billion with a B users. Oh, so wow, that we need to talk about. Uh, I even knew the name. Share it. It's like oh, oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. A lot of people have downloaded that. that. Yeah. Uh huh. Yes. Um, and they're all in trouble. Um, also, we're going to take a look at Microsoft's interesting note about the rise of web shells which dovetails nicely into this week's WordPress add-on disaster. Um, I'm going to briefly update about my past eventful week with Spinrite, which includes a 25-second movie of the new Spinrite code that I talked about last week now running. Um, And then we're going to take a look at, as I mentioned, this recent discovery on the dark web of this of a massive compilation sorted organized searchable indexed database queryable all it's got all the bells and whistles uh and what it means and of course we always have a great picture of the week <laughs> this one is really apropos i thought i was going to have a story about what it ties to but that story is too big so it's next week's oh topic. interesting oh yeah. But it is very. You're right. It is so. It's just true. Perfect. Yeah. It's a. <laughs> it, uh, and it looks like it's XKCD once again. We got to give like Randall Monroe yeah. a lot of credit. He did a very good uh, XKCD this week on how mRNA vaccines work by comparing them to the uh, Death Star plans from Star uh. Wars and. I think it actually is probably the best description of how an mRNA vaccine works I've ever read. So it's good. Very cool. Yeah. yeah. Just go for the exhaust port. Okay. So our sh- <laughs> you see, you see, it's nice talking with geeks. We all speak the same language, don't we? Uh, sadly, we do. <laughs> sadly, we do. Uh, our show today brought to you by one of the things that uh, we talked about, I think, on our second episode of Security yes. Now, Honey Pots. Right. Yep. The idea honey that monkeys. Yep. yeah, honey monkeys. If you have a honey pot, in fact, remember we had Bill Cheswick on that uh, uh, last pass event we did in Boston some time ago. He wrote, I yeah. think, what is widely considered the very first honey pot way back in the uh, Unix era. I ha- we have come a long way, baby. This is a Thinkst canary. It's about the size of. Um, Oh, I don't know, like a, an external hard drive or, you know, it's not big. It's not heavy. It's not, but 
Here's the beauty part. What you see is not what the bad guys get. With a Thinkst Canary, this little box connected to my network can appear like anything. It can look like a Windows 95 server. Uh, yes, it can look like a modern Windows server, Linux, a SCADA device. You're worried about somebody hacking your water supply? You put this on there. Uh, let them try to log in with TeamViewer. They'll think they're looking at TeamViewer. They're not. Uh, and as soon as somebody tries to get into this device, mine, by the way, is set up to look like, I'll tell you, I got nothing to hide. Uh, it looks like exactly like a Synology NAS. It has the same exact MAC address. It has an official, you know, looking Synology MAC address. Uh, it has uh, even the login page is, you know, exactly the same HTML. The bad guy has no way of knowing it's not my NAS. But the minute he logs in, I get a, an alert, a very clear alert about what's going on, even down to what login and password he might have tried or if they're more than a one, uh, a list of them all. Because that's a useful thing if they're using the name of your, your, you know, your uh, comptroller or then you kind of have some idea what, what, what they know about your network. Attackers on your network are, have to be the single scariest thing for an IT professional. You're always getting attacked, but the, the thought that somebody without your knowledge could be wandering around your network, that's why Cheswick wrote his honeypot. That's what uh, Cliff Stolman described in, in The Cuckoo's Egg. It's all about tracking that wily hacker in your network. They call them APTs, Advanced Persistent Threats, but that's kind of a kind of an anodyne description of a horrific thing. And And on average... Hackers are roaming around people's net without detection in these breaches for six months. Think about the Sony Pictures Entertainment hack. They got in in May. They weren't discovered till October. Uh, think about the Marriott hack, the Starwood Group reservation system hack. What was it four or five years? And what do they do when they're in there? Well, this is, and by the way, this is the new ransomware thing. They don't just send you a spear phishing and then immediately encrypt all your data. No, they spear phish you or somehow get in, get the credentials. Maybe they ask your, their neighbor for your team viewer account. <laughs> they get in and then they quietly, surreptitiously erasing their tracks, browse your network. They look for resources. They look at directories. They look for where you back files up. They make sure that before they trigger the ransomware, they do two things. One, they put little ransomwares everywhere you might have backups. And two, they exfiltrate the most embarrassing information they can find. Your emails, your social security numbers, your payroll. Because they know that if they blackmail you and say, we got your data, and you say, that's okay, I got it safe on this hard drive, not connected to the network, they can still say, yeah, and if you don't pay us, we're going to release this embarrassing information to the world. With Sony, they released the the contracts they negotiated with uh, celebrities. I mean, it was highly embarrassing, right? Movies themselves. These, these guys are your biggest threat, but the canary is your biggest friend because they don't look vulnerable on your network. They just look valuable. In fact, with your canary, and, and you might have, you know, a, a one or two or hundreds, depending on the size of your network and, and how much security you want. You can also create canary tokens, which are individual files. They look like PDFs or docs or spreadsheets. But again, when somebody opens them, 
bing, you get notified. And by the way, the notifications are great. Email, text message, you get to choose how you want. You're not going to be inundated with false alarms, just the information you need when you need it. There's a, you get a console, so you can do that. But it also works with Syslog, so you can have it go to your logs. Slack, it works with you. You get a Slack notification, webhooks, or all of the above if you want. There's even an API. The point is, this is information that you need to know, and it's going to be delivered to you in a concise, reliable, and actionable way. This is so useful. Every company should have a few canaries on their network. Some big banks have hundreds. Canaries are deployed on the, all over the world, seven continents, which means I guess they have them in Antarctica as well. The guys who made the canary, the Thinkst people, have been in the security game for almost two decades. They've trained companies, militaries, and governments how to break into networks. They're experts in what attacks happen and how hackers work and how they think. So that's the knowledge they use to build this amazing honeypot. Easy to set up, easy to configure. It can look like anything you want, and it really, really works. Now, let me give you a common example. People sometimes, typically, maybe a small business would have five of these. I'm not going to tell you how many we have, but let's say you wanted five. 7500 bucks a year. You get the the canaries, and if, by the way, if you sit on one or step on one and it breaks, they just send you another one right away. No questions asked. You get your own hosted console, as I mentioned. All the upgrades, the support, the maintenance, everything included. And by the way, if you use the code TWIT in the How Did You Hear About Us box, 10% off your canary or canaries forever, for life. You're going to love your things, canary. We do. But if for any reason you're not happy, of course, you can always return your canaries. They have a two-month money-back guarantee. That's a pretty awesome time frame. 60 days. If you're not completely happy, return it for a full refund. Canary.tool slash twit. Don't forget the twit code in the How Did You Hear About Us box. Uh, I've spoken to so many people, uh, audience members who've used these now. If you go to canary.tool slash love, you can see all the tweets. Some of the biggest companies in the world use canaries and love them. Canary, in fact, most, I think. Some just don't talk about it. Canary.tools slash twit don't forget the offer code twit for 10 percent off for life okay steve arino so picture uh, today uh yeah uh this is great it, it's kind of difficult i mean in a, in a if anyone sees it they'll instantly get it but to describe it for our listeners rather than our viewers um imagine a big uh construction of blocks of different sizes representing software modules and they're all kind of piled up on top of each other kind of like a house of like a house of cards of all different sizes some up on their end others standing on top of them you know balancing really precariously i'm sure there's some wooden block game of this sort where you have to keep adding blocks to it and then you have to start taking them away kind of thing to, you know, have the whole structure stay together. Anyway, the point is that in this particular construction, down at the very bottom of this very complex multi-hierarchy tiered conglomeration is, is one little kind of a peg standing on its own and the whole thing is labeled all modern digital infrastructure to sort of represent that, yes, 
this is the way today we build these things. <laughs> it's like a house you know, of cards out of blocks. It's yeah, just like exactly. Nutty. Yeah, exactly. Or How Jen, you know? Jenga, it's, it's all modules coming from here and there that are conglomerated together, and they've all got you know they they rely on an API below them, and they expose an API to their upper surface, and something <laughs> else hooks onto that, and it's all kind of glued together. Anyway, this one little stick down at the bottom is labeled a project. Oh, I should also explain that this little stick down at the bottom is basically supporting the, the structure of this entire thing such that if this stick were removed, it's immediately clear that the entire thing would just tumble off to the right and fall apart in a billion pieces. So this little stick is labeled a project some random person in Nebraska has been thanklessly maintaining since 2003. And, you know, I mean, it's, it, this is funny because it's so true. Yeah. You know, Open SSH or yes. NACL your, yeah. or, yeah. Right. Right. You know, pick your super popular. It sort of became a de facto standard when no one was looking. And now one like, guy. <laughs> Everything is built on it. Yeah, you know, one it's guy. Felix. Yeah, Felix, Felix in Nebraska, in and he's is, and he's uh, and he's. By the way, people yell at him all the time. They're constantly complaining. Nobody's yep. giving him any money. He's doing it out of love. This is really kind of the way it's it not is. handling the the triple back tick expansion of some random command, yeah. and it's like you need to add this. And he's like, okay, well, you know, uh, no. Uh, yeah. Anyway, so the, the the point is, okay, we you know we all are depending upon Felix more yeah. than uh, we're aware yeah. until he like says I'm done. The hell and with then it. It's like wait, wait, <laughs> it's wait, not wait, worth wait, it. wait, wait, no. Yeah. yeah. So uh, in a variation on Felix, we have Oldsmar, Florida. As I mentioned last week, uh, I, I hope the scare. Of the kind of near miss that we had uh, might serve as a bit of a wake-up call, not only to other water treatment facilities, but also to sort of the larger industrial control sector in general, uh, whose security pretty much must be wanting. I mean, you know, what, what we always see is that anything we've never looked at closely is full of holes, and, you know, the only reasons our browsers are as strong as they are from a security standpoint is that we're, we're just like that they're getting so much attention. But those things that don't get attention, they're like Felix with his little peg up there and eh, just hope that it stays where it is. Well, as it turns out later last week, something kind of like that might have happened, at least in small part. The state of Massachusetts Department of Environmental Protection posted a cybersecurity advisory for public water suppliers uh, with the subtext how public water suppliers can guard, can guard against cyber attacks on water supplies. And I don't know, like, who put the state of Massachusetts Department of Environmental Protection in charge of the larger water supplier world. But at least they were the ones who made the statement, and they it did get picked up far and wide by a lot of the press. So it, it's a little bit more specific to this particular issue than I was hoping for. 
uh, since it must be that the security problems with industrial control extend to every application of the SCADA control systems that operate all this stuff. Uh, but it did offer in its advisory a few interesting new tidbits about the attack, which were not publicly uh, were not public knowledge uh, when it occurred 11 days ago. Okay, so what they said was, open letter, dear public water supplier, we appreciate your attention to cybersecurity and the recent incident in Florida. Here's a more specific description of the events and suggested protective measures. They wrote the FBI, Department of Homeland Security, U.S. Secret Service, and the Pinellas County Sheriff's Office have issued a joint situational report that concerns the water sector. The EPA is providing crucial information from this report to the WSCC, I don't know what that is, Water System Something Council or something maybe, and the GCC, which I'm sure is not the language, uh, for awareness, they wrote. EPA recommends that all water systems implement the mitigation measures listed at the end of this report where applicable. They said on February 5th, 2021, unidentified cyber actors obtained unauthorized access on two separate occasions, approximately five hours apart, to the supervisory control and data acquisition, SCADA, system used at a local municipality's water treatment plant. Of course, we all know this. The unidentified actors accessed the SCADA system software and altered the amount of sodium hydroxide, they said, comma, a caustic chemical used as part of the water treatment process. The water treatment plant personnel immediately noticed the change in dosing amounts and corrected the issue before the SCADA system software detected the manipulation and alarmed due to the unauthorized change. Okay, well, so that was good to know. That's good, yeah. That there was some backup in case somebody was literally asleep at the console and not kind of curious about why the mouse pointer was mysteriously moving itself around the screen, which, you know, he saw five hours before and didn't think twice because, yeah, that that happens because they do have remote access of that sort. And they all have the same password. Did you see that? I know. I know. I know. As a as a result, they wrote the water treatment process remained unaffected and continued to operate as normal. So they said the unintended actors access. I'm sorry. The unidentified actors access the water treatments, the water treatment plants, SCADA controls via remote access software, TeamViewer. Thus, of course, you use TeamViewer in your uh, previous presentation uh, of our sponsor, Leo, appropriately. They said, which was installed on, and there's some some confusion about this. They're saying one of the several computers at the water treatment plant. I've seen other reports that said on all the computers at the water treatment plant, but there is universal agreement that they are regardless all sharing the same login authentication. 
So they said, which was installed on one of, of several computers the water treatment plant personnel used to conduct system status checks and to respond to alarms or any other issues that arose during the water treatment process. In other words, SCADA. They said all computers used by water plant personnel were connected to the SCADA system and used the 32-bit version of the Windows 7 operating system. Further, all computers shared the same password for remote access. So that was the that was the, the red flag that yeah, went up. No all kidding. computers shared the same <laughs> password for remote access and appeared to be connected directly to the Internet without any type of firewall protection installed. Yeah, okay. So, I mean, like, really? Not even behind a router? Maybe that, you know, who knows? So, so they said recommended mitigation. I mean, so that reminds you of, like, Windows 98, right, back then. Anyway, recommended mitigation. Restrict all remote connection. Now, this is so this is what went out in this announcement, this advice. Restrict all remote connections to SCADA systems specifically those that allow physical control and manipulation of devices within the SCADA network. One-way unidirectional monitoring devices are recommended to monitor SCADA systems remotely, meaning you can look, but you cannot change. They said install a firewall software-slash-hardware appliance with logging to ensure, oh, and, yeah, this would be good, ensure it's turned on because that would be good. The firewall should be secluded and not permitted to communicate with unauthorized sources. Okay. Keep computers, devices, and applications, <coughs> excuse me, including SCADA slash industrial control systems, software patched and up-to-date. Use two-factor authentication with strong passwords. And finally, only use secure networks and consider installing a virtual private network, you know, parens VPN. And they concluded with implement an update and patch management cycle, patch all systems for critical vulnerabilities, prioritizing timely patching of Internet-connected systems for known vulnerabilities and software processing of Internet data, such as web browsers, browser plugins, and document readers. Okay, so everyone who listens to this podcast <clears throat> will have pretty much become security-aware enough for none of that advice to be the least bit surprising. <laughs> and, you know, it does sound a little bit generic, right? Yeah, well, it's a start. <laughs> I love it that they're using right. Windows 7 shared team viewer passwords. I mean, oh. you couldn't do it any worse. And it's open to the public Internet, apparently, yes. not secluded. Yes. I don't know if secluded is the right word. That sounds like it's in a yeah, quiet I little... You know, grove, Put it on forest vaca- grove. Give it a vacation. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I but I get the point absolutely. Yeah. So there has been some speculation about the timing of the attack within the security industry because that massive database 
breach or re reveal that I mentioned, which contains 3.2 billion unique email slash password pairs, <laughs> was leaked online just three days before the attack. That database contained 13 entries relating to the Oldsmar facility, which that is those containing the domain ci.oldsmar.fl.us. <clears throat> we'll be discussing the details and consequences of the publication of this massive list at the end of today's podcast. But in my mind, it would be a huge coincidence for the two to be related, given that the newly leaked list contains, as I said, 3.2 billion entries. You know, so what happened is that the, the a security firm, after seeing the Oldsmar, Florida exploit, queried this newly released database and found, yes, 13 entries that were relevant. But given that you have 3.2 billion entries, you could probably put just about anything in there and you'll get some results. So... I think that a more plausible explanation was offered by Christopher Krebs, the former and founding head of the U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, CISA. In congressional testimony, Chris told a House of Representatives Homeland Security Committee last Wednesday that the breach was very likely the work of a disgruntled employee. Uh, or maybe ex-employee. And I think that is extremely likely. Um, this is not to excuse the obvious lack of security throughout the installation. You know, when you hear that all the machines are using the same password, like when that when that news gets spread widely, uh, okay, you, you already have some serious security egg on your face. One other note is that, especially since the pandemic, TeamViewer has become to remote control what Zoom has become to teleconferencing. But whereas the pressure of its public exposure and its very public security failures rapidly matured Zoom's security, as we talked about starting about a year ago, um, TeamViewer has remained pretty much unchanged, and those knowledgeable about TeamViewer are not impressed. Many of those within the industrial control industry who have been interviewed since the Oldsmar incident have observed, unfortunately, that they often see TeamViewer installed at sites and just shake their heads. Yeah, it works, but it's anything but secure. And the reason it's chosen, you know, by Johnny to manage his grandparents' PC when they get tangled up with, you know, what button to press is that it is so drop-dead simple to use. And I'll note that TeamViewer does offer multi-factor authentication. But, of course, you need to turn it on. Um, and if the problem was a disgruntled employee, they might have current credentials, if it was an ex-employee, then, of course, somebody who was at the Oldsmar facility in charge of security 
and you wonder whether the phrase in charge of security is just an oxymoron at this place because apparently nobody was. Uh, they would, of course, after terminating someone, you'd have to go around and do the equivalent of changing the locks on all the doors. You'd need to change the the passwords and the the one time that you know the the one time password uh, authentication secret and so forth. But it seems very unlikely that anyone did. So again, uh, yes, it's none of this in this instance is rocket science. You know this this bar was so low that anybody <laughs> could have jumped over it in order to in order to unfortunately start poking around with the SCADA system at the plant. Uh, again, the the best possible outcome is that because this got so much attention in the press, all the other admins or people in charge have to have thought, ooh, crap, we don't even have passwords. So, you know, <laughs> you know, let's hope this was a wake-up call and that a lot of attention got paid. My great concern, and, and I, I don't want to be right on this, is – that we keep seeing that anything that hasn't received serious attention is seriously lacking in security. And there have been lots of people worrying about SCADA, lack of SCADA security. The fact that these things just aren't being attacked, as far as we know, means that they're not getting lots of attention. Well, let, let's hope they. That, let's hope that the concern is great enough that security really is an issue, and that we're not going to have to, you know, get a rude wake-up call when when we have a a nationwide power outage and you know, like the the equivalent of what we did. Apparently, we did. Uh, we and uh, uh, the. Israeli cyber folks with Stuxnet when the uh, Iranian uh, nuclear centrifuges got blasted by Stuxnet, you know, that was a SCADA attack, very clever uh, and high end because, as we know, they were not on the Internet. All these systems are because everyone wants the convenience that that affords. But if you're going to do that, you really need to take responsibility. <clears throat> so, speaking of taking responsibility, a lot happened with last Tuesday's patch batch. Overall, Microsoft addressed 56 security vulnerabilities, including 11 rated critical and six that were already publicly known. So, yes, let's get those patched. Uh, and as expected, they did finally lower the boom on the use of unencrypted remote procedure calls to prevent the protocol fiddling that was what led to an enabled last year's zero logon mess. So they gave everybody lots of time to get that resolved and fixed. They don't want to break anything, but they do want to get this, you know, what was basically a serious protocol mistake locked down. They can't really change it without breaking things, but they can at least wrap it in a secure, uh, authenticated tunnel in order to in order to keep it from being abused. The 56 CVEs span the .NET framework, Azure IoT, Azure Kubernetes service, 
Microsoft Edge for Android, Exchange Server, Office and Office Services and Web Apps, Skype for Business, and Link, uh, as well as Windows Defender. The biggie that was found being exploited in the wild carries a surprisingly low severity rating of just 7.8, which puts it in the important range. But researchers noted that it deserves attention above some of the critical bugs in terms of its patching priority. This problem exists in Windows Win32K operating system kernel module. We've talked about that often. It is an, an elevation of privilege vulnerability. It would allow a logged on user to execute code of their choosing with admin root system level privileges. So in the context of the kernel. And again, it is being used maliciously in the wild. So it's good that last week's updates eliminated it. I, I guess it probably got a 7.8 because you had to already be a, a local logged on user. You know, you had to be on the system with access to the API. However, if you had that, that allowed you to bypass all of the system's, uh, you know, deliberate security provisions against against allowing such a user to have root privileges. And so this cut right through that, it's fixed. And again, it was found being used. So it was, certainly was useful. There's also a publicly known critical flaw in the .NET code and Visual Studio, but details are being closely held. Dustin Childs, who's Trend Micro's zero-day initiative guy, said... Without more information from Microsoft, that's about all we know about it. Based on the CVSS severity scale, this could allow remote, authentic, unauthenticated attackers to execute arbitrary code on an affected system. He says, regardless, if you rely on the .NET framework or .NET Core, and like pretty much everything does now, he said, make sure you test and deploy this one quickly. Believe it or not, <laughs> there are also two critical rated remote code execution flaws in Windows fax service. <laughs> well, that's they got to fix that. <laughs> <laughs> fax service? Yeah. <laughs> really? Does anyone does anyone fax anything anymore? Oh, believe can, me. Can you, can you, there are a lot of people who still use that hard to believe. Wow. I know. In any event, Microsoft said that an attacker who successfully exploited either of these two critical vulnerabilities could take control of an affected system, yes, by fax. Can and then, you, could, wait a minute. You could send a fax to it and it would hack it? Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> oh. Yeah. yeah. Wow. <laughs> then from from receiving a fax, the bad guy could install programs, oh my God. view, change, or delete data, or create new accounts with full user rights. You know there are tons of businesses, medical offices, and more that use this for inbound faxes. I this is wow. actually probably more serious than we're wow. We're considering we're, we're well, thinking. So, to me, this sounds like, for most of us, one of those services you you want to uncheck 
and remove <laughs> from most, if not all, Windows systems. Yeah. Uh, again, we always want to be minimizing our attack surfaces. We recently talked about turning off unneeded application layer gateways in our routers. Unneeded and unused features are inherently dangerous. If a system that has never needed to send or receive a fax doesn't have its fax service running or installed, even if the fax code is vulnerable, it's not there to be attacked. So, you know, in Windows Control Panel, on the Add or Removes Apps page, there's a link for adding or removing Windows features. You can browse that list and remove the crap that Microsoft installed in order to minimize their tech support calls. They'd rather have the fax service running, taking up RAM and making everyone vulnerable to the exploitation of its flaws in the off chance that someone somewhere might someday need it than to have than to require the person who needs it to install it if they know they need it. So, you know, hopefully those uh, those law firms and doctor's offices, you know, okay, good, cool. Faxing in Windows, we got that. But it would sure be nice if it was just not on by default. The principle here is clear. Whether it's an unneeded gateway in your router or a Windows fax service you will never use. Services that are not running cannot hurt you. And without question, shutting them down or uninstalling them will reduce your attack profile. When you hear about systems being security hardened, it's because all of this stuff has been turned off. That's what you do to harden a system, right? You turn that all off and you turn on the firewall. So anyway, uh, uh, now we're going to talk about a service that no one can turn off or remove. Believe it or not, Windows is still experiencing remote code execution vulnerabilities in its TCP IP stack. What year is this, Leo? Right. <laughs> As we know, that's the last place you want to have such vulnerabilities because it, it is by definition exposed to the world. And nothing you can do about it. That's what it does. <sighs> One flaw. Yeah. yeah. And you're glad that yeah. like, you can talk to other people. One flaw that Microsoft fixed last week was found in the way Windows handles IPv4 source routing. And the other was in the way Windows handles IPv6 packet reassembly. Okay, so what was I just saying about the abuse of unused and unneeded code and services? Here's what Rapid7 has to say about IP source routing. They said, the host is configured to honor IP source routing options. Source routing is a feature of the IP protocol that allows the sender of a packet to specify which route the packet should take on its way to its destination and on the way back. Source routing, they write, 
it was originally designed to be used when a host did not have proper default routes in its routing table. However, they said, source routing is rarely used for legitimate purposes nowadays. Attackers can abuse source routing to bypass firewalls or to map your network. Oh, yeah. Turn that one on. Definitely. Oh. <laughs> Quoting Dustin Childs again from Trend Micro's ZDI, uh, who was short and to the point about this one, he said, IPv4 source routing should be disabled by default. He said, you can also block source routing at firewalls or other perim perimeter devices. In other words, not today, nor for the past couple of decades, if ever, has anyone had problems with their routing tables. They work just fine. Thank you very much. Notice that also in the 15 plus years of this podcast, where we have gone many times deep into the bit levels of the internet, IP packets, and routing, never have we even touched on IP source routing yeah. because it is never used. Why would you need it? In the, you don't in the it's, real world. It feels like a vestigial feature that was left in almost by accident, like nobody even... Is that still in the... Do we still exactly. have that in our TCP stack? Yet Microsoft just patched <laughs> a critical flaw... I shouldn't laugh. ...with a CVSS score of 9.8. Oh, oh. So here, before last Tuesday, or and hopefully no longer since everybody installed their updates, right? Were someone to send your system a deliberately malformed IP packet containing source routing information, although the feature has never been used and has never been needed, they could nevertheless take over your system remotely. Holy McGillicuddy. Yeah. You know, there really ought to be an install time option in Windows. You know how, like, yeah. you get that screen of little slider switches. Yeah. Do you want about that? Do you want that? How you... much spying do you yeah, want and so yeah. forth? Yeah. <laughs> there ought to be a big slider switch where you get to choose. How much and legacy on one side, code? It's, yeah. yeah. On one side, it's labeled security. <laughs> and on the, on the other side, it's labeled install a bunch of unneeded and never used extra features. <laughs> Unbelievable. It, it is. Unbelievable. It's just like, again, 2021. So, uh, you know, unfortunately, it really is a switch. You, you can either have security and not have the, a bunch of unneeded and never used extra features installed. You, but you can't have both because code is buggy. Uh, and I know I sound like I'm harping on Microsoft, but I'm very clear always that anyone can make a mistake. You've never heard me jump on anyone for making a mistake. My entire problem surrounds policies. Organizations should be held to account for their policies. And Microsoft has clearly demonstrated the policy of installing unneeded services by default and supporting long, obsolete, and unneeded protocols. They don't want someone saying, hey, why aren't you supporting IP source routing? 
Uh, they ought to just say, go get Linux. Really? It's just nuts. I mean, I don't even know if Linux has it turned on by default. And that you know, it might. The, <laughs> you know, yeah, it, it, it really it, it might. Actually, yeah. yeah. That's, why I, that's why it came to mind. Yeah. Um, and that brings us to the other TCP IP bug, IPv6 packet reassembly. Now, we've talked about this. Packets are never supposed to become fragmented in transit from their sender to their receiver. It's inefficient, and it's assiduously avoided by all internetworking equipment. It can occur when a router receives a large packet on one of its interfaces, which needs to be sent out, thus routed, out of another interface that has a lower MTU. MTU is the maximum transmission unit. But much as with IP source routing, what made sense at the dawn of internetworking has since largely become obsolete. Ethernet rules the world. And the Ethernet MTU of 1,500 bytes is the standard. There are so-called jumbo frames for Ethernet of 9,000 bytes with the idea of making Ethernet frames, you know, individual Ethernet frames larger in order to allow them to carry more payload per frame, thus reduce the per frame, or in this case per packet, addressing overhead. But such jumbo frames are only useful within carefully controlled environments and they generally cause more trouble than they're worth because you just sort of get inexplicable can't you know, can't reach this destination errors. And then it's like, oh, that's right. We're, we, you know, this is a jumbo frame connection. So packet fragmentation has turned out to be a longstanding annoyance within the internet protocol. We've off there. I mean, it's been a source of continuous problems. Once a packet becomes fragmented, it remains fragmented throughout the rest of its or their journey to their destination. And the packet reassembly problem turns out to be a particularly tricky wicket to code reliably. As a result, as I said, it has historically been a source of some significant networking vulnerabilities, which we would hope by the year 2021 have been finally been resolved. Not so. Windows TCP IP, which still, until last Tuesday, was not managing to get it right, thus creating a newly discovered critical vulnerability with a CVSS score of 9.8, enabling a full, unauthenticated remote code execution vulnerability in Windows. Because fragmentation is no longer supposed to occur, some high-security firewalls simply drop all incoming fragmented packets. It's considered a good, a good practice. Or a router, which is faced with the need to fragment a packet for some reason, may choose not to fragment and forward lots of smaller packets, but rather to return an ICMP that's, you know, Internet Control Message Protocol message explaining to the sender that the packet it just received is too large for it to forward. 
in which case the sender should reduce its transmitted packet size and try again. So in other words, robust mechanisms exist for handling this without the need to ask the receiver to the receiver of the, the final collection of fragments to ever reassemble them. Despite the fact that it's just you're never going to actually get fragments if before last Tuesday, if Windows 10 did, whammo, takeover. Um, I like the whammo. These, <laughs> <laughs> yes. A little big thought bubble oh, comes whammo. out of your machine. Whammo. <laughs> <laughs> last Tuesday also fixed a critical bug in the Windows camera codec pack and another in the Windows DNS server. Thankfully, that is one service that Microsoft does not install by default because they understand most people, while they still think most people need to receive a fax, they realize most people don't need to be a DNS server. Yes. So the good news is that one has turned off. The bad news is it is highly critical remote code execution. If the service is running, if someone does have Windows 10 before last Tuesday configured to serve DNS queries and it receives a maliciously formed DNS query, what is it, what is it we say, Leo? Whammo! Whammo! That's right. <laughs> a critical flaw <laughs> was... Pow! <also>. Zoom! Bang! <laughs> Biff! Biff, pow. Biff. Right. Uh, also fixed in Windows print spooler uh, in the dot core for Linux uh, and in Windows Codex library. So pretty much just your typical month in the life of Windows 10. They are never going to get it right because their economic model which they have adopted, now requires that they keep fussing with it forever. Mm -hmm. And all experience tells us that every time you touch it, you risk breaking something that used to work. It doesn't matter how good you are. It doesn't matter how careful you are, especially with an edifice. I mean, basically, that picture of the week that we showed at the top <laughs> is Windows. windows. <laughs> you know, yeah. that's what it looks like inside. And it's like, ooh, let me, I'm just going to change this one block here and I'm sure it'll be fine because, you know, we need to support, I don't know what, Rocky Road. So, protocol. So, what could possibly go wrong? Well, anyway, this podcast will run out of digits before Microsoft gets Windows 10 working right. I did mention that if you are using Adobe's Acrobat or Reader, uh, either 2017, 2020, or the DC versions of either, there is a targeted attack on those occurring in the wild. So that needs to be fixed. If you're using any of those, if you know you're using them, then uh, you do need to uh, get yourself updated. That's uh, important. Uh, Adobe has released fixes. You can probably just ask any of those to, you know, check themselves for updates. They'll go ask Adobe and they'll find, oh, yes, there's, uh, there's something new that we need to take care of. Okay, now, uh, I mentioned that I don't normally talk about 
Android app security flaws and problems. You know, they have their own podcast here on the Twit Network. And I also suppose it's because it seems like such low-hanging fruit. Uh, I mean, our time here is limited every week. Um, but when vulnerabilities have been found and responsibly disclosed in an Android app that has 1.8 billion users worldwide, and when, after 90 days of no response from that, that app's publisher, the responsible and well-known disclosing party decides to finally go public with their vulnerability information, then the situation rises to the level that we need to touch on it here. The Android app in question, as I mentioned, is Share It, all capital S-H-A-R-E in all caps, I-T in lowercase. And, you know, I don't follow this stuff that closely, but I recognize that one. Uh, and I venture that many of our Android-equipped listeners may have a copy. The Google Play Store lists it as Share It, Transfer, and Share. It is obviously a super popular file exchange app. It was Trend Micro who examined, discovered, and reported the problem to share its publisher and received no feedback. Trend Micro wrote, we discovered several vulnerabilities in the application named ShareIt. The vulnerabilities can be abused to leak a user's sensitive data and execute arbitrary code with ShareIt permissions by using a malicious code or app. They can also potentially lead to remote code execution, and we have, they, they have RCE, yes, we know. In the past, vulnerabilities that can be used to download and steal files from users' devices have also been associated with the app, meaning it has a history of problems. They said, while the app allows file transfer and download of various file types, such as Android package APK files, the vulnerabilities related to these features are most likely unintended flaws. So, ShareIt has over 1 billion downloads in Google Play and has been named one of the most downloaded applications. It was in the top 10 most downloaded applications in 2019. Google has been informed of these vulnerabilities. So we'll see what action, if any, they take. Trend Micro's posting then delves into the details of the app's API registrations, that is, the things it's doing that are causing these problems, and in detail into its operation, which allow arbitrary files to be downloaded and executed, including downloading and installing any APK. You know, and it, and just to be clear, it's not the ShareIt app itself that's malicious, but that its presence in all 1.8 billion Android devices, which are creating security holes large enough to drive Google through. So this creates a huge opportunity for abuse by any other app that wants to get up to some mischief. And now 
after Trend Micro's full disclosure, everyone who might want to do that knows about it. They concluded their detailed write-up by saying, we reported these vulnerabilities to the vendor who has not responded yet. We decided to disclose our research three months after reporting this since many users might be affected by this attack because the attacker can steal sensitive data and do anything with the app's permissions. They said it is also not easily detectable. So mostly a heads up to any of our listeners who have downloaded share it. Um, if it's, you know, uh, it might be one of those free Android apps that you once upon a time download, uh, you know, used it for a while and then forgot, forgot about it, but it's still installed. If it's still installed, it's a problem. Now would be a good time to say goodbye. Or maybe you use it regularly and cannot live without it. In that case, perhaps be on the lookout for its publisher to finally take the security of their app seriously by producing an update. Maybe this will bring them under some pressure to do that. Uh, or maybe find a hopefully more responsibly written alternative. Anyway, mostly I just wanted to give everyone a heads up about Share It because, uh, yikes, uh, uh, it does sound like it's massively installed and its presence is creating a set of vulnerabilities for anyone who has it installed that, you know, that could create problems. Certainly, you can imagine it being used uh, in, in a targeted fashion. If somebody knows that you're using ShareIt and can get you to download something which is not itself malicious, but then abuses the permissions that ShareIt has asked for itself, uh, you could be in trouble. Yeah, it's still on the uh, on the Google Play Store and with no yeah no notice yeah. of anything. Uh, and as it's as you said, one billion plus downloads. Woo That's got to be the majority of Android phones in the world, right? <laughs> I think I so. Mean, That's uh, yeah yeah. I I don't think yeah, I've ever I mean, installed it. It doesn't look like I ever have. Thank goodness. Good. You yeah. don't want it, and yeah. neither and neither do our listeners unless you really need it. And it, again, it's one of those things. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll be talking about this theme a little bit, this notion of, you know, removing things you are no longer using because even if they're not still there, you know, they can still represent a problem. So uh, Microsoft, last Thursday, uh, they have, they, they've got a, a team they call Detection and Response Team, DART. Um they post an interesting update about a rapidly growing security threat, which we've not yet ever discussed directly. And that's known, these things are known as web shells. So first we need to define a web shell. It's a fancy name for some malicious code that, well, you definitely don't want running on your server or rather actually present in your server. Um, a web shell is typically a small bit of malicious code written in whatever typical server-side web development programming language your server supports. So that would be something like ASP, Active Server Pages, PHP, Personal Home Page, JSP, Java, serv Java Server Pages, or similar. Um, attackers 
somehow arranged to implant their script onto a victim's web server to then provide them with long-term persistent remote access and code execution of server functions. These web shells allow attackers to run commands on servers to steal data or use the server as a launch pad for other activities like credential theft, lateral movement within uh, the, the infected network, deployment of additional pay payloads, or hands-on keyboard activity, and most significantly, they allow attackers to rather trivially maintain a persistence within an affected organization, which is surprisingly hard to detect. Um, and this gets picked up by our radar because Microsoft has been monitoring this as a rapidly growing trend. They wrote in their posting Thursday, one year ago, we reported the steady increase in the use of web shells in attacks worldwide. They said the latest Microsoft 365 Defender data, which, you know, is their, their uh, online real-time instrumentation system, shows that this trend not only continued, it accelerated. Every month from October, from, sorry, from August 2020 to through January 2021, we registered an average of 140,000 encounters of these threats on servers, almost double the 77,000 monthly average we saw over the same period year over year compared to the previous year. The escalating prevalence of web shells may be attributed to how simple and effective they can be for attackers. As web shells are increasingly more common in attacks, both commodity and targeted, they said we, we continue to monitor and investigate this trend to ensure consumers are protected. Microsoft blog posting continues with a little bit of riveting case history. They said, attackers install web shells on servers by taking advantage of security gaps, typically vulnerabilities in web applications, and we'll be talking about one next, in WordPress, in internet-facing servers. These attackers scan the internet, often using, using public scanning interfaces like Shodan.io, to locate servers to target. They may use previously fixed vulnerabilities that unfortunately remain unpatched in many servers. But they are also known to quickly take advantage of newly disclosed vulnerabilities. For example, last June 30th, F5 Networks released a patch for CVE 2020-5902, a remote code execution vulnerability in Traffic Management User Interface, TMUI. The vulnerability is a directory traversal bug with a CVSS score of our favorite 9.8. We talked about it at the time. Microsoft says, just four days later, on the 4th of July, exploit code was added to a Metasploit module. The following day, 
Microsoft researchers started seeing the exploit being used by attackers to upload a web shell to vulnerable servers. The web shell was used to run common cryptocurrency miners. Now, of course, those were the quaint days, right, when cryptocurrency was being mined. Now, it's your, your you know, we're going to encrypt all your data. We're going to exfiltrate, as you said, Leo, the embarrassing bits. And then we're going to hold you hostage and, and make you pay us some Bitcoin. Yeah. <laughs> They're so smart, yeah. these ransomware yeah. folks. Exactly. Not, not, you know, again, although, boy, uh, did you see what's happened to Bitcoin, Leo? Oh, oh don't, don't. Zip, zip, zip oh. it. <laughs> zip. Yeah. Actually, it's Ouch. far worse for you than it is for me. Oh, I my son, I gave my son my wallet and said, "You can hack it if you can crack it. You, you know, it's yours." And then I told him, "The good news is, by not being able to oh, unlock it, we've watched Bitcoin go through the roof." You know, that's true. Neil, you're right because we would have all sold our coins oh, yeah. back like so long ago. That is that is the the way I feel better about this. Is you wouldn't that, have the fifty you know, now. You wouldn't. You would have sold it when there were a thousand no, bucks each, and you would have said, "I'm I, happy." I would have thought, "Woohoo! Woo! I'm yes. rich." Yes. <laughs> I told Henry, "By the time those seven point eight five Bitcoin are worth more than a million dollars, we'll have quantum computers, and we can just crack the thing." Right. So you actually do have your wallet. You just oh, have I have the, the wallet. I forgot the password. Oh, which is really stupid. Wow. But we can. We'll be able to crack it. Not maybe with current computing technology, but by then it'll be really worth something. It'll be worth cracking it. That's my Good. attitude. Good. I like that attitude. <laughs> and it gives Henry something to look forward to. Oh, it drives him nuts. Yeah. <laughs> it drives him crazy. <laughs> Weekly, he'll email me, say, did you think of any more passwords you might have used? <laughs> I actually have it running on my system at home. So if I ever think of a password, I can try it. But so far, no luck. You know when I'm going to feel bad? So, when it goes down to a buck a Bitcoin. <laughs> right. 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 Opportunity missed. Like when it collapses again. Right. Right. Yeah. If if it does. Who knows what's going to happen? If it does. You know, I, I, think, I think it was you who said that uh, some financial group was saying they see this thing going oh, yeah. to 150000 And with, with companies Bitcoin. like Tesla buying $1.5 billion of Bitcoin, that just props it up further, you know. Yeah. So as long as that continues to happen. Yeah. Would you like me to take a break? That, that's a great idea. Uh, uh, <laughs> well, in, in fact, let, let, let me just finish this one oh, piece sorry. Go about ahead. web shells, and then we'll do that. So once these web shells have been installed on a server, writes Microsoft, uh, web shells serve as one of the most effective means of persistence in an enterprise. Listen to that again. Once installed on a server, web shells serve as one of the most effective means of persistence in an enterprise. And we'll talk about why in a second. They said, we frequently see cases where web shells are used solely as a persistence mechanism. Web shells guarantee that a backdoor exists in a compromised network because an attacker leaves a malicious implant after establishing an initial foothold on a server, that implant being the web shell. If left undetected, web shells provide a way for attackers to continue to gather data from and monetize the networks. I love that. Monetize the networks they have access to. Yes, we're going to do a little 
you know, malicious network monetization now. Okay, so just to make the mechanism clear, a web shell script is just a static text file with an extension like .asp, .php, .jsp, or so on. The typical web server will have a bazillion such files. They're little fragments of the whole web system package which are invoked on demand. And if one additional .asp or .php file were to be added to the hundreds of others that are already there, who would ever know? It's like some file appearing in your system Windows System 32 directory. Remember the quaint old days when there were four files that ran our operating system? Now, there's, you know, no one knows what they all are. So the point is that if one additional PHP file somehow gets added to the, uh, you know, to a contemporary web-based system, it's impossible virtually to detect. And it would tend to go completely unnoticed. Okay. Then at any time or times later, a remote attacker simply queries a specific URL on that company's web server, which references the web script that was deposited into a script executable directory, which is to say along with all the other .phps or .asps, and the, attack, and the attacker's code comes to life. It's really kind of diabolical. It's trivial on the one hand and doesn't take a rocket scientist. After all, PHP was designed to be dead simple, uh, to, to, you know, to use as a page scripting authoring language. So you just always hope that it's only your code that your server is running. What Microsoft points out is that the instant a new vulnerability surfaces, attackers are now scanning the Internet and using the new vulnerability to quickly get a foothold, to quickly drop a web shell onto what might be briefly vulnerable targets before they're patched. And once there, the script can then sit unseen. Not, I mean, it's not running. Nothing is going to detect it. It's like it's just subtext code sitting in an executable script directory, but it will come to life when invoked. So, you know, as I said, if minutes later, the vulnerability is, that allowed it in is patched, to foreclose any future use of that vulnerability, it's too late. Now that server is carrying a malicious script that will jump into service whenever it's invoked through simply receiving a querying URL. Microsoft notes that the challenge of discovery of such implants is hampered by the sheer volume of network traffic, plus the usual noise of constant internet attacks. This means that targeted internet traffic aimed at a web server will blend right in, making detection of web shells a lot harder and requiring advanced behavior-based detection that can somehow identify and stop malicious activities that are essentially hiding in plain sight. Um, so anyway, I just sort of wanted to put that on everyone's radar. Uh, it is a growing trend. It has doubled in a year. It is... You know, the the concept of 
of empowering web servers to interpret textual scripts as code is incredibly empowering. You know, this method of running server-side code has pretty much taken over the world. It's the way it's being done now. And the downside is that, well, text files on the server are being interpreted as code. Yeah. In other words, it's both what we want and what we don't want. Right. Uh, and it really is a growing problem. I mean, I, uh, somebody put a PHP script ages ago on one of my servers. Uh, yep. And uh, because I had that folder open for FTP, you know, right. they, people could execute it. And, you know, that's a real flaw. You really shouldn't <laughs> have folders that just anything in there can be executed. That's just but that's yep. the one of the biggest flaws with PHP, in my opinion. Yeah. And, and in fact, we we've talked about several of the recent problems with WordPress and we're right. about to talk about another one is that it, it, you can do that dot PNG dot PHP right. or the other way around, right. you know, double extensions. And it'll be seen by the system as an image file. But when the inter when, when when the PHP interpreter is invoked with it, it'll go, oh, look, I've got something to do. It's a script and it'll run it. So, wow. Wow is wow. Or um, whammo. Whammo. Bow. Zap. Zoom. Biff. Uh, let's, uh, let's take a break. Actually, I found out I have one more break in the show, but it's not a long break. It's just going to be uh, a pause so we can insert ads later. That's okay. something we're doing these days. Um, our show, this segment, brought to you by people who have been part of my life for a long, long time. ESET. I used to do ads for ESET back in the day. I mean, I think on the radio a long, long time ago. Uh, I stopped using them uh, myself because, you know, I didn't feel the need to. But what little did I know is one of the reasons I didn't feel the need to <laughs> is because Russell was running it <laughs> on the company network. We've been, it turns out, using ESET, Enterprise ESET, for years here at Twit, I'm always asking, Russell, are we safe from ransomware? Do I have to worry about spear phishing attacks, attachments? And he always says, we're safe, we're safe. Now I know why. ESET. Uh, ESET has had uh, two new exciting developments. Well, I, I should say, before I get into this new stuff, the reason I've always liked ESET, two reasons. One, one is it's very lightweight. You know, so many antivirus products just slow you down like crazy. ESET has the lightest system footprint ever. They're also consistently at the top of AV ratings. They just uh, earned the best ratings at the AV Comparatives Endpoint Prevention and Response Comparative Report. Um, they tested nine vendors, the big nine. ESET not only got the highest combined prevention and response score in the test, but they also demonstrated outstanding overall detection and reporting capabilities. This is why, you know, we use ESET. They, they earned the top rating in these AV comparators reports. They call it Strategic Leader. That's a product that has a very high return on investment, low total cost of ownership, and exceptional technical capabilities. I would submit if you're looking for an enterprise AV, you want, that's exactly what you want, all three of those. Uh, and we should mention this AV comparatives test is the, one of the most comprehensive tests of endpoint detection and response solutions and endpoint security products ever conducted. Uh, this is the, the biggest test uh, that they've ever done. So the, to win this is huge. But it doesn't surprise me. 
ESA is always getting better, too. They just uh, introduced their brand new endpoint security management platform. I'm sure Russell's using this. I'll tell you, I'll tell you why. There's features that I think Russell really wants in this, and you will, too. Russell's, I should explain, our managed service provider, our MSP. He's our contract IT guy. We've tried to hire him many, many times. He's always said, no, you know, I don't want to work for you. I like the variety, which is a good thing because one of his clients is a big winery. We get good discounts on wine from Russell. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Russell. Russell saved Valentine's Day this year, Steve. You'll... <laughs> anyway, ESET Protect, I digress. Uh, one of the new features, uh, the main features is, and this is the one I think Russell really uh, likes, the ESET Protect Cloud. Because he's always moving around. You know, he's in Napa, he's in San Francisco, he's in Petaluma. ESET Protect Cloud gives cloud-based management for businesses of all sizes. So with no restriction on seat size either, by the way, which is fantastic. So he can manage us from wherever he is. If there's an issue, he can see it. He can respond to it. He doesn't have to come running over it. That's huge. ESET Protect also takes security to a whole new level with new bundled products featuring enhanced protection against ransomware, zero-day threats. Let me... I'm, I'm a, Put a pin in that one because I want to talk about how they do that. Plus full disk encryption capabilities for Windows and Mac OS. Now, let me mention this zero-day thing because you would say, well, it's a zero-day. How would ESET know? How could they protect you against zero days? Well, one of the things they do that's so smart, when an attachment comes in an email, before it goes to your inbox, they take it, they put it in the cloud, they execute it in a cloud sandbox and observe its behaviors. So that they can verify, no, that's fine, that's okay, and, and then pass it on to you or say, wait a minute, that thing's modifying system files or, or any number of, you know, dangerous behaviors, and they can say, stop, that's not going to you. That's how they get the zero-day threats. Right now, you can save 20% on all these new bundles, so you're not only getting the best-in-class cloud-managed protection against advanced attacks, you're enjoying a significant discounts. So if you're a small business... Uh, if you're a medium-sized business, if you're an MSP like Russell, ESET Protect Advanced. This is the bundle that has all the security you need, the cloud-based management console. They include endpoint protection, cloud sandboxing, full disk encryption, file server security, a cloud-based console. That's what we do, and that's what Russell likes. But, of course, there's some people who say, nope, I want on-prem. And, of course, they offer on-prem management as well. Either way, with ESET Protect, you're getting powerful, reliable security based on 30 years of research and innovation. These guys are the very best for your business. So don't forget, get your free ESET business trial and an interactive demo at business.eset.com slash twit. You'll save 20% on ESET Protect bundles with this great limited time offer. Trust ESET to future-proof your business. Business.eset.com slash twit. And twenty uh, percent off, but 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 act quickly. Don't wait, and get that free trial and interactive uh, demo. Eset. Okay. So uh, I mentioned uh, we have once again another yet another WordPress mess, and I hope that if nothing else, uh, mentioning these every week. I mean, they are a great concern to the security community. I hope that mentioning them every week is, you know having the effect of increasing our listeners' security by virtue of doing something to keep themselves from being vulnerable. Uh, I, me I mentioned WordFence last week. It sounded like a, a useful service. They have both a free and not. 
Um, and so that's something to think about or just really resisting the installation of plugins. It is, it's, I, I don't know whether we've seen an instance where WordPress itself has problems any longer. Uh, I'll, you know, knock on wood here somewhere. Uh, but in this case, this week's problem is known as the responsive menu WordPress plugin, uh, which is exposing more than 100,000 WordPress sites to multiple critical and some high severity vulnerabilities. This responsive menu is a WordPress plugin designed to help admins create W3C, you know, World Wide Web Consortium, compliant and mobile-ready site menus. The, uh, that, the group I mentioned, WordFence, the threat intelligence folks, found three vulnerabilities that can be exploited by attackers with only basic user permissions to upload arbitrary files and remotely execute arbitrary code. Uh, you know, what was I saying about the rise of web shells? This is, you know, it's exactly the kind of thing you would install would be a web shell. Uh, and a WordPress site would automatically be having a PHP interpreter running. So off you go. The first of the three flaws enables authenticated attackers to upload arbitrary files, which eventually allows them to achieve remote code execution. So there you need some authentication. That was the one problem. But the other two vulnerabilities allow an attacker to forge requests to modify plugin settings of the plugin, which in turn allows them to upload arbitrary files allowing for remote code execution. So to leverage these vulnerabilities, the attackers logged in as subscribers or another low-level user, upload menu themes archived as zip files and up and containing malicious PHP files. Once the archive is extracted for installation, the attacker can then access the files via the site front end to remotely execute their malicious code, which ultimately can lead to a full site takeover. So, you know, it sounds like a more an involved, you know, kind of complex dance to go through to get remote code execution. But if the target has sufficient value, and if, for example, a persistent web shell can then be dropped into a briefly vulnerable server, it might well be worth the effort. So once again, unfortunately, a WordPress plugin is pre is presenting an opportunity. Uh, it, the, the problem is, we've talked about this, these are written in PHP. I'm, I, we know, I, I absolutely, I'm sure, that all the plugin authors have the best of intentions, but they're but they're not professional security people. So, you know, unless you have been exposed to directory traversal, the consequences of directory traversal attacks or double file extension compromises. I mean, again, you know, we keep seeing the same things happening and over, over and over because people who aren't security professionals are writing code that has to be secure against, uh, against security threats that have become well-known. And so the, the same mistake keep being made over and over and over. So I, I don't know how we get ourselves out of this. The, the only solution with WordPress is if you've got to run your own, give it its own sandbox, you know, give it its own virtual machine, 
restrict what it can do. While I was running one, I gave it its own physical server and established a hardware firewall between it and the rest of GRC because I just I could not risk, you know, something getting loose in there. Uh, And of course, I, you know, I was very careful about what which plugins I installed. I added a couple, but, you know, minimal which is I think the plugins are, are really. I mean, at least historically, yep. it's all been plugins, right? The the yep. core code, I think, is pretty good. I think that's exactly right. Yeah. Yep. So, uh, a brief update on Spinrite. Last week, I talked about, and I made you chuckle, Leo. The anxiety-provoking <clears throat> uh, <laughs> discovering systems mass storage devices screen, where historically. If Spinrite was going to get tripped up, it was if it was going to have a problem, that was where it would happen while it was scanning the system's drives. What was off what was often happening was that since Spinrite was having to always use the BIOS, which is what I'm working hard to get completely away from, it would make a BIOS call innocently asking something about the drive, and the drive would have a problem and the BIOS would just hang. And so it's like, uh, hello, hello, uh, hello. Oh, okay. Anyway, so uh, I decided, as I mentioned uh, last week, to to show Spinrite's work in progress as it's doing the work. Uh, and so I decided to post Spinrite's process and progress as it went along onto a screen. Uh, and you've got it up on the show notes. That's cool. At this time last week. That was just a concept. Today it exists. I'm impressed. I finished. Holy cow. That's, that's <laughs> fast. Wow. I finished that work and posted a sample image, which you've got on screen, of the new Spinrite screen to my work progress tracking thread of my blog on the GRC forums and also to GRC's Spinrite.dev newsgroup. But then, because actually seeing it work is really fun, I made a a video. Oh, uh, fun. Uh, the link is there below the screen. Yeah. It is GRC's shortcut of the week. So grc.sc slash 806. That will take you to a 25-second video of this process, which is running on my my Megadeth uh, uh, development machine, which, you know, has a, a few bunch drives. of controllers. <laughs> yes. A bunch of drives, a bunch of controllers, all kinds of That is so cool, Steve. That is and really so, cool that you did that. Can I ask you a couple of questions about your development? Yeah. yeah so, yeah. You, you know, as we all know, Steve, is, is uh, this is a DOS uh, program because you can't run it while yep. Windows is running for obvious reasons. Um, how do you – and it's it, so it's a – what do you call it? TUI, right? Uh, it's a text-based user interface. Do you by hand – do the ASCII code for line, bar, cross, all of that? Or do you have some sort of generator that you use to create that? Um, you must have a macro or something, right? So, sort of both. The, um, there, was a, there was a really neat text kind of like text editor uh, written a long time ago called Dan Bricklin's demo. Oh yeah. Uh, oh yeah. Of course we, we all we know, know Dan, Dan Bricklin. Sure. Yeah. He he was the originator of one one of the two uh, along with Bob Franklin of Visical. Frankston. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. A- and uh, and so so DBD Dan Bricklin demo was a 
it was a DOS program that allowed you to sort of easily uh, like like edit screens, uh, type text into windows right. and things. Right. So I prototyped Spinrite's user interface in that, um, but but you know it was its own world. So then I, I took from from the prototype what I did build was a a full text windowing system. So Spinrite is built on top of a textual windowing system where I'm able to, for example, oh. uh, push the screen, pop a, 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 a window on top, and then and then tell it, uh, point it to a description of what's in the window. And then, for example, things like the, the menu bar will automatically move up and down as the user presses up and down arrow. So I'm... I'm I'm coding a lot by hand, but but the things that are but but I but I did first sort of build sort of a windowing OS, a little windowing OS, which and, and then I describe all of the different windows in a data structure uh, that is efficient for that, and it compresses down to just nothing because it's all text. So uh, clever. So that. that's see, so, that speeds all of this stuff up. All of these. Uh, things that you have yes to do. yeah yeah it means that i'm not having to to write everything by hand i've got a bunch of tools and and actually you know it's i'm so rusty with it that it's been good for me to build a new screen in this system because it's like oh that's right i can do this so i have like i've like was rediscovering all the subroutines that i wrote you know two decades ago uh in order to to bring this screen to life but yeah. anyway grc.sc slash 806 nice. you know, the, today's podcast movie. number. This yeah. is, you can see the difference, though. If you had to sit for 25 seconds even looking at a blank screen, it gets it, a little nerve-wracking. But if you yes. see it doing stuff, it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's enumerating devices. Go ahead. Yeah. 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 And it's, it's cool to it actually be able cool. to see. Yeah. It. Yeah. So um, uh, oh, 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 the, the, the other thing that happened is – uh, oh, so I forgot to mention that. So I got that done at the end of last week. Like I think it was Friday, or maybe like I think Friday night. Uh, I released that. That is the the first piece of the new Spinrite code uh, to the Spinrite.dev newsgroup, and they all began pounding on it. That is, they ran that all on their own systems, and uh, maybe. Maybe a hundred different systems, you know, maybe seventy-five. I, I I didn't count them. I ran across one problem that came back from a, a guy, Chris in Germany, has an AMD uh, gigabyte motherboard with a Phenom processor. It, it, everything's great if he boots from floppy, but if he boots from uh, from a USB, we have a hang problem. It it was it was happening with read speed the predecessor code I finally it just the problem kind of went away and I'm like okay well I'm glad it's not happening any longer anyway it's back so yesterday or the day before I purchased I found that motherboard on eBay and so I've got one of them coming because really the only this is just some obscure I don't even know what the problem is uh, but uh, but there's that. Um, then a couple people had a problem with that last phase you can see in, 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 the, in the video where all the hardware is first enumerated and all of the drives are found, the controllers and their drives. And then it goes back in and patches in the BIOS 
uh, numbers. Well, that's important because drives that Spinrite doesn't recognize through hardware, it will still allow to be accessed the way it always has been through the BIOS. It's not ideal, but at least you can still run it. And that's what Spinrite has always uh, allowed you to do. But now the problem is if it doesn't, if it finds the hardware but isn't able to associate it with its BIOS number, then you'll get two listings for one drive because Spinrite won't know that they're actually two references to the same drive. And so I call that BIOS association, and it's it's tricky. So that's what's happening with this NVMe here. It's identifying yeah, exactly. both as NVMe and SCSI. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So it's probably the NVMe that is actually appearing as that last BIOS drive. Right. And so it you oh, so I that's see. the 88. way you will yeah yeah you yeah. will a- a- access it. But imagine if any of those lit up in white drives, if they didn't have their BIOS numbers next to them, then then it would it would show it it would show the BIOS. Uh, item because it would think that it's going to have to access it that way, but also it would show the the physical drive. Well, so one of the ways I I got around that was by hashing the the boot sector of every physical drive, and then accessing the boot sector through the BIOS, hashing that, and looking for a match. It works unless two drives have identical boot sectors. And in, the, in, in one case, uh, one of the systems had two one terabyte drives and two 500 gig drives since they were identical size and they were set up by the same guy at the same time. They had identical boot sectors. So they had the same hash and Spinrite was unable to disambiguate them. I have a solution for that also. Uh, that involves deliberately leaving the drives in an error condition and then reading from the BIOS, which will clear the error condition in the hardware. And that mostly works, but in this case, it isn't. So anyway, that's where I am this evening. I have an idea now about how to make that second, that, that fallback process more robust. Uh, but, uh, but And the moment I get that done, then... Uh, and of course, I'll get this this uh, USB boot gigabyte AMD Phenom processor based motherboard in, and I'll stick it in a chassis and see if I could recreate Chris's problem. Hopefully, I'll be able to make it happen here. In which case, I'll just figure out what's wrong, and I will, you know, dance for a while because it's w- when Chris posted a couple of days ago that you know he was having this problem. It's like, oh. I thought that one was gone, but, yeah. you know, I didn't really earn it. Uh, it just kind of disappeared. And so I was like, okay, well, I guess I'm going to have to really figure out what's wrong. And Leo, why don't we take our final break? Okay. And then uh, I'm going to talk about Comb, the compilation of many breaches. Compilation of many breaches. <laughs> Uh, it sounds like uh, Comb sounds like it should be a spy show from the 60s. The man from Comb. <laughs> Steve Gibson, we are talking security. And what is Comb, Steve? Okay, so uh, on the screen in the show notes is what happened 
when I put one of my email addresses into this test site, uh, oh no, exclamation point, your email address has been leaked. Now, the good news is that was I ran through first all of the email addresses I think I have ever used at GRC. None of them were there. Then I put my Gmail address in, and that's the one that came up. Um, okay, so I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, uh, but I did want to refer our listeners to this leak tester. I gave it its own GRC shortcut, grc.sc slash comb, C-O-M-B. That will bounce you to the personal data leak check at cybernews.com, who are the folks that that wrote about this uh, monster database leak um, uh, and, and immediately brought up a site check that allowed people to perform a database query against their email address. So the cyber news guys wrote, it's being called the biggest breach of all time and the mother of all breaches. Of course, the mother of all breaches would be Moab, which <laughs> in my that would be a far cooler name. Although technically Moab has already been taken by the mother of all bombs, which is that uh, you may remember that yeah. low air dispersion, just right. this insanely powerful, or maybe it was a bunker buster that was a Moab. I don't remember. But anyway, uh, uh, we haven't checked in on the status, as I mentioned, of the underground dark webs aggregation and maintenance of massive login credential lists in quite some time. So I thought that the recent, this recent appearance of the latest and by any measure greatest such compilation would be a good opportunity to see where all of that currently stands. COM stands for Compilation of Many Breaches. Uh, it contains more than 3.2 billion, with a B, unique pairs, of, unique pairs of, so no reps, clear text emails with their matching passwords. I've embedded a screenshot of the hacker's announcement from exactly two weeks ago, February 2nd, uh, in the show notes. And the, the fine print, the, 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 he has four bullet points, which I had to squint to read, so I've also reproduced them in the show notes. Four bullet points. He wrote, most of the contents are almost all publicly available. He said, compilation of many breaches is built on the breach compilation, which was 1.4 billion entries. And he says, and more new leaks added, for example, collection number one through number five and many more. So these are things, you know, we're beginning to see a little bit of the parlance of the the dark web, you know, because like the people who are typically reading this are like, oh, yeah, yeah, of course, collection one through five, you know, but, you know, it's not something we talk about. He said, second bullet point, all data is in an alphabetical order in a tree-like structure. He says, as with the breach compilation, a query script is included. And he said, all data is archived and added to an encrypted and password protected container Password is below, although you can see in the screenshot it says 
hidden content for authorized users. And whoever was viewing this was apparently not authorized. Um, or maybe they you know, didn't take a screenshot of that. In any event, Cyber News, the people who, who posted about this claim that they were the first leak test database to include the comb data. And since comb was first released, uh, they said that nearly 1 million users had used their personal data leak checker to see if their data was included within this biggest breach compilation of all time. And as I said, I checked all of my various GRC email addresses that I've had through the years and they all were clean. But when I checked my Gmail account, which I sort of use as just a generic spam filtering bit bucket, you know, like if I don't really want to give someone my, uh, my GRC email, I'll give them my, uh, my Gmail. I received the screen above, which informed me that my email address had appeared in a breach. Fortunately, I do change that, that my, my main Google password from time to time. It is a long, high entropy, total gibberish password and I have one-time password multi-factor authentication enabled. So, you know, uh, less for Gmail, which I don't really care about, than for my Google account itself, which I do. Uh, but I never use that Gmail account for anything that, for example, might need password recovery. So nothing sensitive is even passing through that account. And although it's, it's, uh, un it's unusual behavior with Gmail, where they encourage you to leave everything there, I routinely delete everything from but my this, inbox and, and trash. Do they have the passwords for this account or just the email address? Well, I don't know. They, have an e they, they say they have an email address and some password. So huh. Huh. I don't know what it is that they have. Right. Uh, you know, you can't see that. I don't know... Um, you know, well, I mean, okay, so email addresses are not hard to come by. No, they're not. And by and themselves, they're me it's meaningless that somebody has it, except you might get more spam. Correct. And I may have used, and, and I do, as I was just saying, I use that for like other ways, you know, like throwaway accounts. So, for example, I might have had, you know, used my my Gmail account on some other site when I was creating an identity there. So I used that and some password that site leaked its information. So it's not my right. Gmail account password no, that right. was associated with the Gmail email. It was some random password at the, at the site. So what we hope, however, is that even back then, and I don't know when then was, but, you know, there was a day, Leo, when you were known by your monkey password. And so <laughs> it could be that know, it could be that. We've all gotten better <laughs> since we've all gotten better since those early innocent days where we use although a lot of people still use password 123 as their password yeah. unfortunately. Hey, anyway, how is this so, different from have I been pwned? Is this a bigger database? Yes, it okay. is a it is a bigger database. I went over to see whether have I been pwned had updated yet to include this, it doesn't look like they have. They did mention the Collection 1 uh, Yeah, database. they have the anti-public combo list. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And actually, that's here somewhere. I did run across anti-public and uh, exploit.in, 
those are also uh, both right. incorporated here. And they have collection so, one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it looks like they're, you know, in general, they're, these guys are trying to be the one-stop shop for everything. Um, uh, uh, I'd say, oh, I'd I, say I, that's I, the big was, difference between this and Have I Been Pwned, because in, in the case of Have I Been Pwned, they tried to tie it to the breach that is associated right. with that email address. Right, right, right. So you, you maybe can get some guesses to what password has been yeah, so breached. so they're they're seeing things uh, like uh, in 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 this comb database, Netflix, Gmail, Hotmail, and Yahoo, uh, you know, email address domains. Um, they did some counting and they found approximately two hundred million Gmail unique Gmail addresses and four hundred and fifty million Yahoo email addresses, and again. Those are not necessarily the login for those services. They could just be, you know, other sites that were breached and people used those addresses at those sites. Um, uh, Microsoft confirmed Outlook had been breached uh, back in 2019 or I guess between January and March of 2019. So hackers were able to access some of the uh, Outlook.com, Hotmail, and MSN email accounts. We know that Yahoo suffered uh, was probably the biggest breach of ever. Uh, the breach occurred in 2014, but remember they didn't tell anybody about it for two years until 2016. In that case, uh, bad guys apparently had access to all three billion of Yahoo's user accounts, which were impacted. Um, so. And of course, we know that these days, many exfiltrated passwords are now hashed. Older ones weren't back in the, you know the 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 really early days, and then even in the early days of password hashing, those that were were not well hashed. You know, few if any iterations, maybe no salt added, or maybe a static salt for the site. It wasn't until later that we understood. Okay, you got to do per account salt, and you got to iterate the hash a whole bunch to make it really difficult to reverse. So consequently, some of these raw databases contain email in plain text and passwords as hashes. Um, however, when the data from the previous breach compilation was analyzed, it was found that 14% of exposed username password pairs had not um, had not previously been decrypted by the community and were now available in clear text. So it looks like this the project of reversing these password hashes is an ongoing campaign, and there is progress being made uh, on that front. And then anytime you have a database like this, there's the question of age, right? You know, the, you know because these things do tend to just continue to grow uh you know hackers always want to say oh yeah mine is bigger than yours so they're like you know to say 3.2 billion uh uh email addresses and passwords the question is yeah but how many of them are still good for anything um as we know the older the lists are the less useful they're going to be however uh when the identity intelligence company 4IQ discovered that breach compilation database in 2017, so 
what, four years ago, they tested a small subset of the passwords for verification, and most of the tested passwords worked, they said. So uh, the threat analysts stated uh, the, the, at, at 4IQ that they found this 41 gig dump on December 5th of 2017 with the latest data updated on November 29th of that same year of 2017. And we talked about this at the time. If anybody says, oh, that kind of sounds familiar. It did for me too. Um, the four IQ researchers note that the leak was not just a list, but rather an interactive database that allowed for fast one second response searches and new breach imports. Given the fact that people reuse passwords across their email, social media, e-commerce, banking, and work accounts, hackers, of course, can automate account hijacking and account takeover, um, or at least try. Okay, so what are our takeaways from the news of there is now a 3.2 billion item list? For one thing, old, forgotten and unused accounts often remain active, right? I mean, unless you go and kill it, it's probably still there somewhere. Something somewhere that you might not have used for years could still be active, probably is. And it could allow a bad guy to gain a foothold. I know if you've just sort of abandoned it, but it's still there. Still, if it's still possible to access it using old credentials. So... One thing we could all do is ask ourselves about any accounts that we haven't used for a long time. You know, perhaps since before we began using a password manager, and so we're much less cautious about our choice of password. And <clears throat> monkey. One, two, three. Uh, one, two, three. Don't forget the one, <laughs> exactly. two, three. Yeah. And then... Of course, shutting down any long unused accounts will meaningfully reduce our on online target profile. It's worth considering. And assuming that our password manager allows us to see a list of everything it's holding for us, we might take a moment to scan through it just to see whether we really still need all of that. We tend to accumulate a growing collection of one-off sites where keeping an account might really no longer serve any useful purpose. So again, reducing our profile just makes sense. It's not always easy to delete our account, but increasingly uh, it, it is possible. So, you know, looking through your your password manager and thinking, okay, I am just, there's no way I, or, or maybe you create an account for something you thought you were going to be using that didn't happen. Like how many apps have we have we downloaded over the years that, 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 you know, qualify that way. So, you know, again, reducing your target profile makes sense. And if nothing else, you could have your password manager flip those passwords into the clear and just make sure that they have been turned into a long string of gibberish. That is certainly worth doing. Um, and lastly, as these massive lists age, they automatically lose their value as people change their email and hopefully their passwords. But we can all help 
those lists age out even faster by deliberately obsoleting the data that they contain about who we were, you know, which is us. We can't change what the lists say about our past that's in the lists, but we can arrange to have them say nothing about who we are today. And, you know, just, you know, sort of just some measures to, to stay safe on the Internet. A little hygiene. Yep. Yeah, and a good password, password manager, LastPass, for instance, has a security challenge you can go through. Yes. That yes. Uh, I, I think I'm pretty sure they also have access to a database. Maybe have I been pwned. So, uh, and your browsers now do that, too. They'll, yep. There's a Chrome extension that yep. will say, this pass, we've seen this login somewhere else. Yeah, I don't know. Watch and in out. fact, I, I think it's built into Chrome itself. Because, it might be now, uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, because there was something... I was using, I think I mentioned it the other day, where it came up and said, oh, look, you got a, you know, this password has been used in a breach. Yeah. And I went to look and I go, oh, yeah, that was on purpose, actually. So, yeah. <laughs> I breached I, myself. I, 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 I knew what that was. <laughs> Steve Gibson, he's the only guy who breaches himself. There he is right there. He okay, is the careful about that. <laughs> man in charge uh, at GRC.com. I'm probably not the only guy. Oh, no, 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 no. He's uh, a self-preacher. So next week, I yes. did want to tease next week, unless something even more tantalizing comes up, we're going to examine, oh my goodness, a brilliantly clever new concept, supply chain attack, that was fortunately pulled off by a good guy, mm. security researcher, because if it hadn't been, all hell would have broken loose. 35 major companies were breached in this experiment. So we've got a really fun topic for next week. Yeah, and the super micro hack is back in the news. Bloomberg has put more information out. Supply um, chain, thanks to SolarWinds, that, what you're about to talk about, uh, and quite rightly so, supply chain attacks are very much in people's minds uh, these days. It's a that's a real hazard. And remember that you know we never got definitive proof about Bloomberg, but I would at the time I said you know, okay, maybe it didn't happen, but boy could it happen. Yeah. Well, and we know we've done the NSA's done this with Cisco routers and stuff, so it yeah. happens. We know it happens. Uh, and so it's it, it's it's something to be very much aware of. Good. I look forward to that. That's next week. You can get today's episode and all 806 Security Now episodes at Steve's site. He's got uh, some unusual versions. He specializes in collecting the weird versions, like the 16 kilobit audio versions for those who don't have a lot of bandwidth. He has 64 kilobit audio as well. And he has transcripts. Elaine Ferris actually writes down these immortal words so that you can read along as you listen or search. I think that's the most useful reason uh, to have those transcripts for the thing you're looking for and jump right to that part of the uh, of the episode. All of that's at GRC.com. While you're there, do pick up a copy of Spinrite, Spinrite 6, the world's finest hard drive maintenance and recovery utility now getting more useful more interesting all the time as we head towards 6.1 you'll get a free copy of 6.1 if you buy 6 today you'll also be able to participate in the development of 6.1 and uh, these little side uh, alleys that you're going down are fascinating and uh, and I think I'm really looking forward to seeing 6.1 it's going to be a, a lot of fun coming soon uh, Steve has lots of free stuff as well including shields up uh, which is a great way to test your router. I don't I don't install a new router without running Shields up, and then periodically I'll check it as well. Lots of other fun stuff. GRC.com. You know, Leo, 
that that DNS benchmark. That's a is really good 3, one. Three thousand downloads a day. Yeah. No, I'm not surprised. Oh uh, oh. It's it's a really good way to find a better DNS server than your ISPs. But also, yeah. if you're considering something like uh, Cloudflare's uh, Quad uh, One or Quad Nines or Next DNS or some of these other uh, DNS servers, it's really a good idea to test it first with the DNS benchmark to see what the lo your local results will be. You don't want right. to choose a slow exactly. DNS server. That that That's exactly. not a good thing. Um, you, we also have uh, copies of the show at our website, twit.tv slash SN. Uh, we pretty much stick with 64 kilobit audio, and <laughs> and uh, we do do a video version if you want to watch. See the blinking lights here, the blinking lights there, all the blinking lights everywhere. Um, that's all at uh, twit.tv slash SN for Security Now. There's a YouTube channel for Security Now dedicated just to that uh, show. You can share that with your friends. It's a good way to share the show with your friends just to... A link to the YouTube video because you can even pick the part of the video, the time code and everything and jump right to that. Uh, we also, of course, uh, are on every podcast, you know, program and directory. If you use a podcast program, probably that's the easiest thing to do is subscribe in that uh, either to the audio or the video to get it automatically. Steve is on Twitter at SGGRC is his handle. You can DM, DM him there. His DMs are open. SGGRC. If you've got a tip or a question or a comment, you can also uh, do it on his website, grc.com slash feedback. Next week, supply chain attacks. Ooh, a good one. Ooh, very, very great. clever. New way. Thank you, Steve. Have a great week. We'll see you next week on Security Now. Okay, buddy. Bye. Hey, folks. I'm Matt Pruitt, host of Hands of Photography here on Twit TV. I know some of you have gotten yourself a brand new camera or you just had a camera sitting around and can't quite figure out how to get the most out of it. Well, I have a solution. My show, Hands on Photography. So subscribe right now to learn how to get the most out of that camera. I'm going to show you how to make those images pop. I don't care if it's a Canon camera. I don't care if it's a Sony, Nikon, iPhone, Android, even an inexpensive Android device. I got you covered. So head on over to twit.tv slash hop and subscribe today. Security now.